All right. Hopefully everybody has a handout. If you don't, there should be some back there. Um, still trying to sort out what this is gonna, what's gonna look like now that school started. Everything's kind of shifting around. Wednesday night, we couldn't. We just kept putting table out and table out. And table. There were so many people over there. I thought I was gonna run out of handouts. So. You know, are you committing to Sunday night? Now, is this where you're going to be on Sunday night? Or you're, you're going to try Wednesday night, Sunday night? Every week, it's a new adventure. Anyway, tonight we're going to start this new series in Ecclesiastes. And uh, <clears throat> I've entitled it Over the Sun. Really, I didn't entitle it that. It was Matt and Rod kept pestering me. And so that's where we landed. Uh, but hopefully you've taken a minute to read that first paragraph about Solomon and his wealth beyond comprehension. With the world at his fingertips, he determined to find the meaning of life or the purpose in all things. And he is the one person who has ever lived in the history of the world that had the means to actually accomplish this task. And so the fact that we have his journal to chronicle this uh, journey that he takes. It is truly uh, a blessing and a gift. After his father David died, you have to understand that Solomon, uh, he, he went through various seasons of his life. I mean, there, if you, you read the Song of Solomon, it appears to be a young Solomon who's falling in love in this beautiful story of uh, a man and his love for a woman and how it it develops and grows and you see the wisdom that God granted him in the book of Proverbs but by the time you get to Ecclesiastes the uh, he's no doubt older and on the far side of life and things have started to unravel in a lot of ways and so there's it's, this is a challenging book. It's, it's got some real dark places. Um, when you study Ecclesiastes, it makes you... It, it's like reading really good poetry or literature. It challenges your brain, and you have to really get inside and think about what's being said and, and how it all works together. But at the same time, it's also in my opinion, one of the most practical, maybe the most practical book in all the Scripture. So, we're going to jump in and look at... Uh, can you turn that back projector on for me? Thank you. We're going to jump in and look at the... Uh, you're going to have to advance. We just got problems, you know? It's going to be perfect for tonight that nothing's working. Just fit right into this text. There you go. The book of Ecclesiastes is one of God's gifts to help us live in the real world where nothing works. Where every day is a new adventure and something broken. It's a book in the Bible that gets under the radar of our thinking like a landmine to explode our make-believe games and jolt us into realizing that everything is not so clean and tidy as the television world suggests. See, even that phrase tells you that's how it affects you. You write things like that and, and, and 
start thinking about all sorts of uh, weird ways in which the world is put together. It really just sneaks up on you. You wonder, well, you know, why is the book of Ecclesiastes so overlooked? Well, probably because maybe uh, when people start reading it, they don't take it seriously or they don't take it enough. Uh, ser- you know, they don't take it serious enough or they don't get it or... I tell you, it's a, it's a profitable place to land. In verse 1, the book begins, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, that beginning leaves no doubt as to who the author is. There's only one person that fits that description. There was no other son of David who was the king in Jerusalem. We know exactly who it is. And the reason why you'll notice throughout the book that he refers to himself as the preacher is because that word that in the Hebrew that's translated preacher, it it means one who addresses an assembly or, you know, one who uh, speaks and draws a crowd. And so the translation is preacher but it it doesn't necessarily mean preacher in the office for which I serve but it could be anyone who speaks before an assembly and brings a crowd verse 2 here's sort of his thesis his summation of everything he's going to teach us vanity of vanities says the preacher vanities of vanities all is vanity Now that word that's translated vanity, uh, there's a wide variety of ways in which that may be translated depending on what uh, translation of scripture you have. Hebel, that word in the Hebrew, it means breath or breeze. Now, I don't think that meaningless is a good translation of that word. Although a lot of people who probably are a lot smarter than me think the word means meaningless. I disagree, and I disagree simply because Solomon would not call the world meaningless, meaningless, because there are plenty of things in the book of Ecclesiastes that he says do have meaning. And so it would be contradictory for him to do so. I think vanity is the perfect description of what Solomon's trying to get across. So what Solomon is saying when he, you know, when you have a word repeated in the Hebrew, it's just adding emphasis. And so when you have it four times in one simple phrase, you can understand the uh, force at which he wants us to see this word vanity. What he's saying is that everything is a mist, a vapor, or a puff of wind. So, he begins in verse 3. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. Ecclesiastes is a meditation on how life seems to elude our grasp in terms of lasting significance. How we're, there's something in us that just wants to matter. We just want to make a difference. We just want to, 
We just want to exist for something. We want to, we want to find purpose and we want to find meaning. And in many ways we're grasping and it, it's so elusive. That word in verse 3, circle that word prophet. It's a very interesting word. It means that which is left over after a given transaction. So it's, it's not profit in the sense that we normally would think of profit. But in other words, he's saying after the transaction of life is lived, what's really left over for all of your labor? Solomon's going to, he's going to talk to us very frankly about our labor and our toil and our tendency to live to accomplish things that have no lasting meaning. He's going to lay a foundation of understanding before us that is going to teach us if we if we base our marriage on life under the sun and never look to things beyond our marriage is going to decay right out from under us if we wake up every day and do business or go to work and strive in our own strength if we're pursuing some degree or some accomplishment Whatever we're doing, if we're doing so for the purpose of our own goals, for the meaning in our own mind, we're going to end up bored and frustrated. You know, Solomon, he, he knows things. It's not that we can't learn the things that Solomon learned. It's that we can't learn things the way Solomon learned them. I mean, you, you have to think about a person who inherits this unbelievably powerful nation with unbelievable wealth. David fought all the battles and subdued all the enemies. There were four decades of utter and complete peace. It was 13 years to build Solomon's house. He, he, it was filled with gold and 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 ivory and opulence beyond your wildest imagination he would he had horses shipped in from Egypt and he would he would uh, sit on this giant gold and ivory throne and he everything in the kingdom he owned he was the law whatever he said was he there was nothing that was beyond his reach he could have anything he could do anything I mean he So when he talks about life, when he, when he talks about the futility of labor and that the eye is never satisfied and that you never, you never achieve, you never make it, believe me, he knows. He warns us that over and over, it's like I can hear his voice ringing in my head. If, if your world is work, disappointment's coming. He, 
he sort of points out the, how everything in the world around us is so upside down and backwards. How man left to his own devices will worship, work, and play at worship. So he says if we try to gain control of the world and of our lives by what we can understand and by what we can do, we will find that the control we seek eludes us. Solomon recognized that he's not in control, that he's never been in control, and that he's never going to be in control. Now that's a that's a big pill for us to swallow. Because it's telling us that we're utterly not in control. And we've utterly never been in control. And we never will be in control. Look at what he says, verse 5. The sun also rises. The sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes towards the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls around continually. And comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That'll bless you, won't it? He takes time to notice that. All the rivers drain into the ocean, yet the ocean never fills. The rivers are all fresh water, and they all drain into the ocean, which is salt water. Try to figure that out. The water somehow ends up back where it first began. And the cycle just goes in a circle, and we're sort of just at the mercy of watching it go round and round. The point is that the world itself doesn't seem to go or get anywhere. That's what Solomon's saying. Everything is cyclical rather than linear. So why would humans expect to get anywhere? We're all guilty of this. We, we long, and, and many of us to different degrees, and you know, I, I don't want to stuff everybody in one category or another, but the tendency is especially for men, to be very linear. And nothing in the world is linear. And we're just fighting against our existence, desiring for things to be a way that they were never intended to be. It's like we wake up every day in a world where the sun is chasing its own tail. And around and around it goes, but somehow we convince ourselves that we're going somewhere and that we have a plan and that we're plotting a course. But in reality, we wake up tomorrow and it'll be another Monday. And you'll get up and do the things in the same order that you did the last Monday before and you'll go to the place where you go and you'll eat lunch with the people you eat lunch with and you'll accomplish the things you'll accomplish and then you'll go home and then you'll, you know, you'll walk in and maybe water the flowers or cook something for dinner and then you'll eat or do homework and then you'll go to sleep and then you'll wake up and then you'll do it again and around and around it goes and if you think about it too long you'll just get really depressed and realize that we just live on this treadmill 
And it just goes around in circles. And Solomon's just pointing out the fact that you live in a world that goes around in circles. And that things just happen the way they happen because maybe they've been set up that way. Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that creation is subjected to futility. And what does it say? Not by its own will. But by Him who subjected it. That God at the fall subjected creation to futility. That nothing, that when we sinned and fell, creation no longer operated the way it's meant to operate in glory. No wonder. So tomorrow's my day off. Guess what I'm going to do? Cut my stinking grass. You want to talk about futile. It's almost like Solomon's mocking me here. It makes me angry to think about. I have this dream where some relative that I don't know dies and leaves me a bunch of money. Lisa comes home one day and the whole yard is paved with concrete. (laughs) What? Huh? And I'm standing out there like, ho ho! I finally won. Instead, there I'll be, riding around in circles, like a moron, knowing full well that tomorrow there'd be bing, 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 all them weeds will be dancing, laughing at me in the wind. I'm just, I mean, it, it'll make you crazy. Verse 9, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Humans long to come across something in their lives that will break the constant repetitive cycle. Something to say, to see, to hear that will be truly new and therefore significant. You know, you can, you, can, you can rail against it if you want to, but it, it, you're going to lose. It's just going to whittle you down. No matter who you are in the room, no matter what generation you come from, you have no chance to stand against it. The reality is, is that it's so true. We, we clamor for things as if they're new, but the truth is they're not. And it, it just goes in, in, in circles. And so... Every generation is just repeating the same ridiculous cycle of of whatever's new and great and amazing and wonderful. And really it's just some regurgitated version of whatever's already gone by. But because it's the first time we've experienced it, or I don't know. And then you get to a certain point where you just go, you know... You know the feeling. See, I don't feel like you're with me. Let me draw you right in here. You know, here's what you do. 
there's a bunch of you in the room. You're going to get up in the morning and, and you're going to waddle into the kitchen and find that coffee machine first right off the bat. Once you get a little caffeine flowing in you, then you're going to, you know, you got to get prepared as if, as if you're not sure what the day holds, right? So here's what you're going to do. You, you're going to go in there and you're going you're gonna to turn the TV on. Not to entertain, you see, but because you want to watch the weather. Really? You don't know what the weather's going to be tomorrow. You need to watch somebody tell you. And every day, it's the same thing. And every day, we sit there like zombies staring at the TV while the person tells us, the same thing they told us the day before and the day before. And the, but we got to check anyway as if because somewhere in the back of our mind it's, it's something new and different and we're going to be prepared for it. And it's really just the same thing. It's the same thing. Listen, unless you just moved here yesterday, have an umbrella handy at all times. It's going to be scorching hot. If it rains, it's going to get hotter. And just play that now until mid-September. Then I'll record a new one for you, and that'll go the next three months. It just... I sit in my office, I figure out how I'm going to solve this problem. By the end of the day, you know, I've come to some conclusion, you know, slash resolution, whatever it is. And, and then literally, the next day I come to work, I'm surprised that there's a new problem. And, and this is the thing. Why am I so zealous to solve the problem when I know there's another one right behind it? I should just stay on this one. Like, I'm just going to find a problem I like and go, nope, I'm keeping that one. So when other problems come, I'm like, sorry, I'm tied up on this one. Can't help you over there. I'm going to tell my secretary, any of y'all call? Nope, Tony's dealing with a problem. He can't, he can't see you today. He's got a big problem. He's going to be on this one a while. I'm, not, I'm being serious, but it's, it, it's just comical when you stop and think about it. I get aggravated with Solomon. I'm like, why are you making me think about this? But, you know, we're looking for this new significant thing, but no such thing exists. It just, it's not there. It's not, it's not there. You... I mean, you know, somebody comes up and they're like, oh, you, you know, look at this video of this kid who's singing and, you know, it's mind-blowing. Look at this talent that this 10-year-old has. And, you know, so you watch this video and you're like, wow, that's great. And then, you know, three weeks later, there's an, another video of another, you know what I mean? And so then it, it, it's really... It just goes around in cycles. I mean, it's just not that, it's not new. It's not different. It's just, 
you just, you, 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 you turn the TV on. I go home this afternoon and I turn the TV on. Just to, you know, I knew it would help me tonight. So I turned the TV on. You know, the ticker's going across the bottom with all this. You know, there's so much important information that just what they're telling us isn't enough. They also have to run all this other by because it's like, you need to get all this because it's happening, man. Like, it's more, I mean, it's a lot going on. So you got to be able to focus on two things at one time. So they're up there, yak, 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 yak. And then on the bottom, it's going across. And we've got the, 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 the box office winners. Which movies are drawing in the most money? Who won the box office this week? Who cares? Well, I mean, what is that? How is that information relevant to, to any of us? Do you, I mean, I don't know because I go to the movies once or twice a year. But I'm just asking. When you want to go to the movie, do you, instead of looking at all the movies that are out there, what you do is say, let's check the box office receipts so we know what to go see. I mean, no, unless you own the rights to that movie, But we need to know that information. They want us to know that. Okay. Meanwhile, by the way, when you look at the movies that are number one, they're all remakes of movies that came out when I was in high school. So we have really progressed. You know, it's like I live in bizarro world now because suddenly, you know, Lisa and I went from we're done, you're out, to who are you, and how did you get in my house, and what's happening, and so I've got an eight-year-old and a five-year-old running around, and you know, so when, when the five-year-old runs up to me and says, uh, I want to see the new Smurfs movie. New Smurfs movie? I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure Papa Smurf was Roman when, when I was five. Pretty sure. So you mean it's new again? Oh, yeah, it just came out. Okay. Hmm. But there's something new under the sun, but I don't know what it is. Verse 10. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? Well, hmm. It has already been in ancient times before us. Well, I should know because I'm ancient and I'm telling you. Verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. So Wednesday night, I read that passage right there, verse 10 and verse 11. And then in my notes, this is how I summarized it. Fidget spinner. And then I looked around the room, 
at all these completely bewildered faces. Some of you are like completely lost. And I understand. Trust me. So was I. But not to worry. Soon as service is over, just grab any kid in the hallway and they will show you one. Because there's probably a thousand of them on this campus right now. And yes, they've been out for 30 years, but it's the greatest thing in the world to kids now. So I have red ones and blue ones and orange ones and green ones at my house. We have some that light up, and we have some that light up and spin and play music as they spin. But I should be happy because... Prior to the fidget spinner, the big craze among kids was bottle flipping. So they just took a a water bottle, emptied it out to a certain point, and then spent hours and hours flipping the bottle so that it would land perfectly upright. I'm just saying, I'm getting a little worried about the future generation here. Just saying. So in the first 11 verses, Solomon is not describing what the world is like from the viewpoint of a person without God. That's what a lot of people think when they read this. They think, well, all of that is Solomon's description of somebody who, you know, doesn't know God. Because somebody who knows God wouldn't see things that way. But you'd be wrong. He's describing what the world is like in reality. That it's the same for everyone. That when we get saved, we don't teleport into a creation that's no longer in futility. We live in the same world that's stuck in the same cycle, we change. And so here's the way to understand what Solomon is saying. Being a Christian doesn't stop all of this from being true. Rather, it should make us the first to stop pretending that it isn't true. You see, the problem that Solomon is pointing out is that the world is filled with professing believers who are running around clamoring for the useless cyclical cycle of the world. What he's trying to get us to do is not to say, no, the world really is full of purpose and meaning. He's trying to get us to say, no, it really isn't. We need to embrace the fact that it's not and be the people that God called us to be. So let me summarize all this for you. It may not make perfect sense to us yet, but Solomon is carefully laying the foundation for the main argument of this book, which is very important. Only preparing to die will teach us how to live. You see, if all of life is chasing the wind, if all of life is is stuck in a place where there's nothing new under the sun, then what we should be doing is we should be embracing that reality and 
telling the world that there's something more, but it's not here. Instead of living as if here is everything that the world builds it up to be. To be human is to be a creature. And to be a creature is to be finite. We are not God. We are not in control. We will not live forever in this life. But somehow we avoid this reality by playing make-believe. We work so hard to pretend to live as if In so many instances that we are God, we call our own shots, we decide what will be and won't be. So oftentimes, God's the last one to be uh, brought into the equation. Only when there's trouble, as long as everything's good, we just do it our way. We act as if we're in control. We oftentimes act as if we're going to live forever. We Listen, I mean, the, the, the thing that jumps out to me is how... Averse our culture is to a conversation about death. You know, my guess is, is that if tomorrow some of you have an appointment to go down to the funeral home to make all your arrangements for your funeral... You're going to be all bummed out about that. Why are you going to be bummed out about that? Is it a... Is is there some... Disillusionment or some... Is there something we're not... Getting? Are we going to escape death somehow are we going to listen it's coming so prepare for it i remember in the aftermath of katrina what what was so just evident to me was just the utter and complete uh just shock that Everything that I have spent my life assembling has disappeared. And on one hand, I get that. But on another hand, it's sort of like, but, but why did you think it was secure? I mean, I don't want my 401k to disappear, but... I won't be surprised if it does. I mean, you're a fool if you go to bed every night thinking, I got this. It's all good. You don't have this. You've never had this. You're never going to have this. Right? So here's what he says in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. 
And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom. Surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Do you know what that word vexation means? Irritation. Annoyance. Hmm. So, let's just think about this for a second. Here's somebody who Asked God for wisdom, was granted wisdom and much more. The wisest man who ever lived made a ton of horrible mistakes. Got his life so tangled up, no wonder he, Ecclesiastes, you know, he goes on this journey. Because the, if you study his life, you'll see in the first chapters of First uh, Kings, you'll see what a it was just a disaster after a while. He started out great, but but we we believe been sold this bill of goods that if we if we can attain knowledge, if we can understand, then our un, then in understanding and the attainment of knowledge, we're going to have peace. That's sort of the, just the undercurrent that flows under uh, society that just help me to understand and then I'll be peaceful about it. Well, I want to ask you a question. When there's upheaval in our society, when there is... Uh, where does where does all the where does the trouble and the rioting and the picketing and the where does it begin? Where is the genesis of the unrest in our present day culture? Is it not on the campuses of higher learning? The most unrestful places in the United States of America are college campuses. Where you go to, to glean and to learn and to be enlightened and to understand so that you can have peace. And yet that's where all the... That's where all the struggles start. That's where everybody's uptight about everything. That's where there's the least amount of unity. There's more friction... There's more prejudice. There's more uh, self-centeredness. I'm not against knowledge. I'm all for knowledge. 
I just want you to understand that secular knowledge doesn't bring peace. So if all this depresses you, what you should do is keep reading because there's still a lot to learn. Solomon's going to show us what we should and should not expect out of life. He's going to help us. But he has to, he has to, Solomon knows that in order for, because understand something, though Solomon wrote this book, it's still the inspired word of God any more than if we're reading Romans. It's God speaking just through the Apostle Paul. So there's no way that, that Solomon's ever going to be able to say the things he needs to say, that God's going to show us or teach us the things we need to know until he can whittle us down to a, a level ground so that we can sort of process. And so that's really what's been going on. He's not just saying that there's no gain after we've chased the wind. He will insist that there's no need for the chase in the first place. You see? You see, that's the beauty of the book of Proverbs. It goes underneath where we want to live. He's not saying, listen, you're chasing the wind for nothing. It's not going to yield what you think. What he's saying is, don't chase the wind. Think about how we chase, we chase, we chase. All right, let's, do, let's lay these principles out. Principle number one. Three principles that will guide us. Number one, the sensual lure of something better tomorrow robs us of the joy offered today. Oh, my goodness. I shouldn't have said so much earlier because I could stay here for an hour. Hmm. How many times have we blown past the opportunity of today because we've been fixated on some destination tomorrow that never yields, that never comes, that never... I, I, I think about... I think about my, my experiences hiking in the wilderness... And I think about how I experience things there that I've never experienced anywhere else, although the same opportunity affords me. I was thinking this week about times in the forest by myself Listening intently to the rain. Not just noting that it's raining, but listening to the rain. And then I think about all the times that it rains now, and all I do is note that it's raining, but I don't stop and listen to it. I wonder why when I'm 50 miles away from civilization that the various colors of green 
on the same species of tree spark my imagination, and yet I drive up and down roads every day with trees on both sides of me and don't ever pay attention to anything. This is the lie that at the core, that's at the core of the great deception to think the grass is greener on the other side. How many ways have our lives been destructively influenced by this lie? We must choose to live to please God today rather than trying to build our empire to enjoy tomorrow. It makes me think about the opportunities that are afforded somebody who is in my profession we get the opportunity to spend time with people on their deathbed. Some of you, that may sound like a terrible burden, but it is oftentimes a tremendous joy. Though it can be a terrible burden, but you learn so much about life, so many lessons, so many things are, have been changed in me because of those experiences. Because you walk away from those experiences time and time and time again. And when you see someone take their last breath in this life, when you have conversations with them and they know and you know that, that the sand is almost through the hourglass. And that nobody ever lays there and says, man, I wish I would have worked more. I wish I would have earned more. I wish I would have bought more. Never. They never say that. They say, I wish I would have spent more time. I wish I would have walked slower. I wish I would have listened more intently. But I was always in such a blur trying to get to tomorrow. When tomorrow finally came, here I lay. Contentment is God's protection against chasing our tails in vain pursuit of happiness. I thought about all the people who really I count it such a privilege to have Watch them literally step from this life into the presence of God. And how it takes the sting off of death for me. And how I think of them when I think of death. I think of the people that I have literally seen time and time again. I've seen people who love Jesus. And as they take their last breath, their chest sinks down, they fade away, and a smile comes upon their face. And that never happens with unbelievers. Never.
we're, we're consumed by the good life. I think if you read Ecclesiastes, you'll see that what Solomon is telling us about the good life is that the good life only exists when we stop wanting a better one. Contentment is the key. I cannot overemphasize the importance of contentment. Principle number two, the personal temptation to escape is always stronger than the realization of its consequences. You see, when you live in a cyclical cycle, when you live in a, a world caught in futility, when, you're, when your existence is basically Groundhog Day going over and over and over again, then there's a great tendency to want to escape, to jump ship, to run, to, to hide, to medicate, to whatever it is, but... There's not that inner temptation to stop and give thought to the consequences of our decisions. You see, that's why escapism never works. is because you can't escape. There is no escape. The consequences are always going to be disastrous. Because there is no... There is no escaping the futility. It's just not going to work. You know, we just... But yet, so many times we run. Lord, I just get depressed, man. I think about how many thousands of hours of my life have I sat in my office counseling people. I should have just got Ecclesiastes out and said, Stop it! See you next week. It's not going to work. It's going to be a disaster. It's always been a disaster. You already know it's going to be a disaster. I know it's going to be a disaster. What, who are we kidding here? But in reality, people seldom look beyond anticipated satisfaction to see the detriment of ultimate consequences. My goodness. There are ultimate consequences. But you have to look beyond anticipated satisfaction to see them. You have to get up on a stepladder to see over anticipated satisfaction. You can't see without making a concerted effort to change your viewpoint, to be able to look around, to be able to see what ultimately is going to lead to. So thoughtfulness about the effects of our actions will move us towards seeking eternal priorities in life and forsaking the meaningless pursuits of life under the sun. Principle number three. Life's final destination will never satisfy if God is absent from the scene. Will never satisfy. You see, Solomon is pushing us to look beyond, to see something different. 
emptiness and the fleeting sense of contentment pervade a life lived without God's perspective and approval. If you're reeling a bit tonight and you're not exactly sure what to do with everything that's been said, my recommendation to you would be to just simply take that last statement and just apply that to your life. And if, if you don't really understand the way all this is going to work out or, or how all this fits together, just simplify it. And before you make a decision, before you decide, before you assume, before you, however you want to word it, this is what you do. You you ask, now God, do you approve of this decision? Do you approve of this action? Do you approve of this? And if there's no clear-cut passage of Scripture that directly applies to your situation, then ask this question. God, what is your perception of what I'm about to do? Based on my understanding of your nature and character, what's your perspective? How do you see this decision? But you see, in order to do that, you have to slow down. In order to do that, you have to you have to get a new sight line. You, you, you have to, I mean, oh, it's, it's, believe me, it sounds super spiritual and easy in this context. But the reality of it is, is that when you want something, I'm talking about when you really, when your heart wants something, it's hard to ask God what his perspective is. Do you approve of this, God? Because I want it. The only cure for the disease of futility is a consistent walk of faith in an obedience to the living God. Now that may sound like the Sunday school answer, but believe me, when I tell you that this book will make it crystal, crystal clear. So let's conclude two encouraging thoughts to send you away with. See, I, I love you. Some, some of you are thinking like you're going to be out in the parking lot. You know, like you're having some counseling sessions with each other. Man, I just... I don't want to get up and go to work tomorrow. Well, as you go to work, think of what I'm doing, okay? Riding around in circles. Brilliant. All right, let me encourage you. Number one, if there's nothing but nothing under the sun... then there must be something over the sun.
Number two. If a man who had everything which Solomon clearly did investigated everything visible and found no satisfaction if a man who had everything took all of his resources, all of his knowledge, all of everything that he had at his disposal, if he took all of that and he poured it into investigating everything visible and he found no satisfaction, then the one thing needed in life must be invisible. You see, Solomon's not trying to bum you out about your life and where you live and what you do. What you do, Solomon is trying to get you to answer the question: Do I know Jesus? Have I been born again? Have I been adopted into His family? Am I His son or His daughter? And if the answer to that question is yes then wake up tomorrow and don't live as if that's not true. Don't expect the world to not be futile. Don't expect things to to not be corrupt. Don't expect them to not break down. But live as if you're loved by and owned by someone who is above all that. You see, one way to understand this, and then I'll close, is through our foster care initiative. Because through the dozens of families that have gone through the process that we've lived together, and of all the life-altering truths that we've learned through the process, some of the people who come into the foster care system, get frustrated because it's so broken and it it seems so dysfunctional and why is it not fixed? And what do we need to do about this? And what do we need to do about that? And I just smile. And they say, but Aren't you frustrated by how broken everything is? And I say, yeah. That's why we're there. Not to fix the whole system. But to be a lamp. To be a light. See, we're not going to fix the problem. God didn't call us to fix the problem. He called us to walk into the problem. And so every day, every day, I wake up in the same broken, futile world with the same problems and the same 
opioid addictions, murders, the same horrific things going on all over the place. But in the midst of that, there's 50 some odd children who every night put their heads down in a safe and loving Christian home where they're cared for and watched over. Not because they have to be, but because they want to be. And you see, that's what it's about. It's about realizing that there are things in life that are more important. Sure. I'm 50 years old. There's a lot of things I'd like to be doing. But you know what? There's nothing I could be doing more important than making a forever difference in somebody's life. It's always going to be broken. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. You be the light where God has placed you.